Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, lovelies. Hello. And welcome back to the show. This week we have interesting preamble. We do. Michael's preamble is perhaps a little bit more interesting than mine. It could I be. I will say. Yes. First of all, okay. I appeared on the Bat Cave podcast with John Estrew. It's one of John's chronic rift podcast network shows. It covers the Adam West... Burt Ward 60s television series. I appeared on the episode that concentrated on instant freeze rats like cheese, which was the first appearance of Mr. Freeze. You should all be familiar with John. He does the excellent Cyborg's Six Million Dollar Man show. A show you don't even have to watch the Six Million Dollar Man to enjoy. It's that good. I think so. I think it's a great show. Um, Michael and I yes. both appeared on Views from the Long Box. We did. With Mr. Michael Burlett discussing The Mighty Preacher. The comic book series, not an yes, actual yeah. real man, because yeah. that would be silly. Um, I'll let you know when that when both of those go up closer to the he time. Did say September, I believe. Did he? So it may be around the time that this episode goes live. Yeah. Uh, that's all the interesting stuff I did this week. What did you do, Michael? Um, well, I met Grant Morrison. Woo! Yes. And was he a nice man? He was very nice. Yeah. Good. Apparently, I'm his favourite reader. Which you hit. need to tell the whole story. I, I do. You can't just say, I'm his favourite reader! I don't need to say anything else, because you know. everything else is just the icing on the cake. Was you know? it? Yeah. Okay, well, tell us the tale. Uh, he was at um, the Edinburgh Book Festival, uh, and we, we went up there, um, my girlfriend and her parents took me, and we went up there, and uh, at first we watched his talk, which was about his new projects and finishing off Batman and Action Comics. Um, some of his early days in comics. One of his funny stories was how when he went into the Near Myths offices, everyone was just doing dope. And to him, like that was a bad thing, and he tried to stay away from him. But when he left the offices, he was so high on the dope that he thought he, he sat there thinking about fish and chips for a good half hour. It just made him hungry. Yeah. He went out the building and went, I am inexplicably hungry. Um, and after that, uh, he did assign him, uh, which only should have been half an hour long. Um, and we were only th- we were told we could only have one thing signed. So, um, so you ignored that? No, I, 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 I didn't. I, I got my um, Invisibles omnibus, uh, which, which damn near broke your back carrying yeah. it all over to Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> this woman came around the queue with, a, with these post-it notes saying, "Do you want a dedication?" So, yeah, okay. So I got my dedication, put it on the page, and it says when you get in, you get it signed, and you get out so you can get the key going. But then once we got actually got into the building, there's loads of people just having chats and having anything they wanted signed. So I was like, you know what, I'll push my luck and get my final crisis signed as well. So when we got up to him, I asked him could I have the stuff signed, and he's like, yeah, and he laughed up the name Monkey Mike. 
And because the guy in front of everyone me... Everyone laughs at Monkey Man. Even, even Alan Davis. Even Alan... No, no, let's not go that far. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anything cracks a smile on that face. Um, so, and it's because the guy in front of me got a sketch of Zenith. Mm. Uh, and so I was like, could I be cheeky? And he interrupted me and said, of course you can. Yeah, monkey mate. Did he not say, of course you can. You're a monkey mate. Uh, yeah, your impression's better than mine. He was in the room. Yeah. Um, so I said, you do a sketchy king mob. He's like, ah, I shouldn't be that hard. It's shouldn't just, it be that hard? I'll just, just look in a mirror. It's just a bald guy. <laughs> so I was like, yeah. And we talked about um, the Invisibles. Whilst he was doing it, we talked about the Invisibles. And um, how he wrote himself as King Mob and how it affected him and almost dying. Yeah, I read that story. Yeah. And uh, we were just talking, like, really casually. Do you know something? Grant Morrison's just this guy, you yeah. know? Yeah. And um, so I, I got a picture with him. He put his it's arm very around. nice photo. Yeah, he put his arm around me. I was miffed because no one else, you know. Nobody got, else got touched no, up. No, no. I got touched up by Grant Morrison. Yeah. Show us on the doll where he touched you. <laughs> uh, got the picture taken, and then uh, I told him he was my favourite writer, and he seemed very, he seemed very happy that because he, he asked me, did we see anyone else at the festival? Hmm. And I said no, we only went to you, and he seemed genuinely happy that we genuinely went to touched. See you. Yeah. And so after everything was finished, I said you're my favourite writer, and he seemed pretty genuinely happy again. I said, well, you're my favourite uh, reader. You're my favourite reader. Yeah. Oh, I met Grant Morrison. Good. I'm very glad that he wasn't a jerk. Oh no, because that's just awful when you meet somebody that you like in whatever walk of life, whether they're famous or not, and they turn out to be an asshole. So I'm quite, I'm quite. I've not liked everything the man's read, but I've got more respect for him now that uh, he was good to you, who does like pretty much everything that he's yeah. written. So that's fair enough. So you're happy with your sketches and oh, your am, signatures, yeah. and that you went all that way just to see him. Mm-hmm. It was worth it. I'm glad. But then there's always next year. But do you think he'll go back? Well, he's been there for the last two years. All right. This is when I said, like, I tried to bring as much as I wanted because I probably won't see you again. He's like, I've been here the last two I'll years. I'll be here next year, lad. Yeah. <laughs> Oak, bring your family. <laughs> Get your dad down. I know he don't like a lot of what I've written, but I'm no bothered. I'll even sign something for him. Just, just have a chat with him. Yeah, just have a chat. So, final crisis, dude. <laughs> what were you on? I, well, I was trying to explore the inner consciousness and the outer workings. No, forget it, just sign it. Good, well, I'm glad he was a nice man. I'm glad you were very happy with that. Okay. We have a very special email. Yeah. Not one of those special episode kind of emails. Oh, no, no. Going back to show me where you were touched. <laughs> um, hello, Dan. It addresses certain topics that I've been thinking about for a while. Yeah. And um, Dan's email brought them to the fore. So I'm going to read his email. I, I have asked his permission. Mm-hmm. Can I read the email? And he said yes. Uh, we should mention that Dan has emailed him before. Uh, we read an email of his earlier on the year. He was the reader, listener, reader. He was the listener who was recovering from a double organ transplant. Because we remember thinking, wow, that sounds quite heavy, man. Yeah. And he discovered the podcast while he was going batty in the hospital bed. He reports that all is wonderful. He's big and healthy and feeling better than he has in 20 years. And he can actually read all his comics again. Because his eyeballs have regenerated, (laughs) apparently, which is really cool. He doesn't have to read them on a 40-inch screen anymore. With his Canadian citizenship healing factor in new parts, he's essentially Wolverine. 
only less furry. So Dan's email, which, which gave me a lot of thought, is just titled, An Email Regarding Email. Hello from the cold and unforgiving ice realm that is Canada. <laughs> I don't think Canada's that bad, is it? I don't know. It's it probably no that, worse than here. can't be all that unforgiving. I mean, doesn't Canada apologise first? Eh? <laughs> uh, actually, it's 29 degrees, but I like to push the Canadian stereotype forward whenever I can, says Dan. So, emails. I wrote you an email and you read it, and I appreciated it greatly. I asked you what makes for a good or bad podcast and what you prefer to listen to, and your answer was thoughtful and informative, and I hope listeners learn something from the exchange. This is the kind of email I like to hear read on a podcast, something that stimulates conversation. The problem is that so many emails read on so many podcasts are not really exchanges of information, or even a question. Usually it's just a listener letting us know what he or she thinks. That's it. Here's my opinion. I'm sure this is of overall value to you to let you know what your listeners are thinking and how they feel about your podcast, but are these emails worth reading on air? Usually these emails reflect the views of any passionate geek one might collide with in a comic shop. And let's face it, the general consensus among most comic readers regarding anything usually comes down to I love it or I hate it. And this can get old fast. And then there's the guy who doesn't have much to say but clearly wants to hear his favourite podcast to say his name on air. Here's a recommendation. Read your top three on her and possibly respond to others on your Facebook page. Or even just a thanks to Clark, Bruce or Hal for writing in. Or just read one email per episode and save the majority for a big email episode every couple of months. Or, and if we're going to do this with our new, and we're going to do this with our new podcast, require that every email has a minimum of one question. It kind of forces an interesting exchange. I listen for your geeky opinions. You're allowed to meander and drone on and pontificate or rant or rave like madmen and I have the choice to listen or not. But when an email hijacks five to ten minutes of your air time with opinions, well, I have to admit, for the last few episodes I listened to the intro and then skip forward to the 18-minute mark. I enjoy the rest of the show thoroughly, though. Thanks, Danny Wetz. P.S. I realise I just wrote a boring opinionated email about the problem with the boring opinionated emails. P.P.S. I hope this email doesn't make me sound like a jerk. I'm an alarmingly upbeat person, I promise. Um, no. There's a couple of things in this email. For a, a while now, I have been of the opinion the email section is too long. Even with the half an hour mark. Even with the half an hour cut off, there is a part of me that's been thinking... Because we've frequently gone over that. Yeah. And there is a part of me that... I emailed Dan back when he emailed us, and it was one of those moments where, you know, when somebody says something and something you've been thinking kind of half-heartedly comes to the fore. Yeah. And I didn't know what to do about it, because we are incredibly appreciative of people emailing in. We love getting emails from people. Yeah. I love especially getting emails from people who've never emailed in. That's always fun. People who've never emailed into a show before and choose to email this one, that's great. But I also love emails from the regulars. But there was a feeling that I was getting recently that I was just reading them and saying, oh, thanks for a lot of them. Which goes into what Dan was saying. So, we are going to implement some of Dan's suggestions. I like the question one. Yeah, I like the question one. I mean, he got back to me after I asked permission to read the email on the show. He said, I noticed some podcasts find success directing their audience to writing with tasks. Simple questions. Worst big comic company event and how it could have been great. Most underused character and what you do with him or her. Guilty pleasures, a favourite of mine and why. Most overlooked and underappreciated titles. Stuff that gets the brain gears a-spinning. Um, that kind of thing appeals to me. 
So we're going to do a couple of weeks where we, we get through the emails that people have sent us by doing essentially what Dan suggests. We're going to cover the pertinent points of the emails if they ask us a question or address an issue on the show or something like that. And then, after that, we're going to try and say, go on, try and steer us in a conversational direction yeah. for the email section. Ask a question. Um, especially after the popularity of the Q&A episode. That went down very well. Mm-hmm. Let's try and promote a bit more of that random discussion before we go into the meat of the episode. Because I don't know why people listen to us. Yeah. I, I think it's because we're witty and urbane. Well, that's what I've been going with. But I could be wrong. I mean, what do you think about that email? What do you think about what Dan says there? Um, I, I have no problem with the emails, to be honest. But, not, but yeah. you're, you're not the one sat there reading them. I, I, I have to respond. You know, I, I'm part of the responsive 50%. You are part of the, but, the 50%, it, yeah. But I, I do think it would be interesting if people like ask questions and such, because then it's not just reading emails for half an hour. Right. There's conversation, though that doesn't have anything to do with the show. Right, and they may ask us something of interest that we would never have otherwise considered. Which is what the Q&A was for. Yeah. So if we try and bring some of that Q&A to the regular email section... But yeah. I do. I thank Dan for that email. That was a very good email. It was critical, hmm. without being "you guys suck," which I, I don't. I don't dislike "you guys suck" emails because <laughs> I always find them quite funny. If we suck, why have you took the time to email in? It's not like we charge you. Mm-hmm. Get in touch with our people. We'll arrange a refund. But that was that. No, I like that, Dan. I did appreciate that email. I thought it was very good. With that in mind. We have made some changes to the emails we're going to read today. Uh, Bobby Coakley was the first one in with Rachel Summers' timey-wimey woman who said we did a great job on Days of Future Past. Thank you very much. But we're surprised we didn't mention Rachel Summers who is practically wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey in female form. Rachel was popular enough from that one story for her to physically go back and cross in the time and join the X-Men. She even wore a flash dance-like dance-skin leotard as a uniform in the 80s looking like a red-headed Annie Lennox. <laughs> I do remember that she was in the 200s-ish yeah. in the X-Men. Was Rachel from a timeline where Jean Grey never became Phoenix or was depowered after becoming Dark Phoenix? I'm not sure. The really wild part about Rachel Summers is that issues of Excalibur said she was unique in the multiverse, omniverse, whatever. This was confusing for comic fans who saw alternate Rachels often enough in What If. A letter column said that What If timelines were only fictional fiction and didn't really count until they did. I can give a fictional fiction... It's when fiction is... Fictional. Yeah. (laughs) We can build fiction onto a fictional story. All right. It wasn't until House of M that Chris Claremont fully established that even though there were various worlds, timelines, whatever, where Scott Summers and Jean Grey had a daughter named Rachel, none of them are alternate to our Rachel. Why? Claremont once told me personally that Rachel was supposed to have been created in Jean Grey. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? to me. The Cape Pride of Days of Future Present showed up again in the Days of Future Yet to Come, an Excalibur story that wrapped up Alan Davis's run on the boot, which I believe Luke mentioned in an email last week. And by the way, the Wolverine from Days of Future Past did you regenerate from getting flash fried by a sentinel? Of course he did. Yeah. In the Paradise X series, which was also very wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. That's from Bobby Coakley. Thank you, Bobby. Some good points that I'd forgotten, or we didn't mention that Rachel did appear in the regular comic book around the 200s. I remember her being in it. I'd never likened her to Ali Lennox, but okay. that is actually quite good. 
Time travel, ask the temporal experts and sundries is from Rob Stubbs. Rob says hello to Leyland and Leyland, or if you've committed a crime, their expert lawyering can get you off or get you the electric chair, whichever one amuses them the most. <laughs> I'm going for the electric chair. Yeah. I think that would be funny. Or a low-powered electric chair. Yes. Uh, Rob says he's not been keeping up with the whole movie production on Days of Future Past, so the idea that Singer went to camera as an expert on time travel is ludicrous. If in a cynical attempt to link the big name of Cameron to the movie was done, that's far more acceptable to me than trying to cite Cameron as an expert. He's an expert who's violated his own idea of how time travel works in the sequels to the original Terminator. I do want this X-Men movie to be good, but stupid crap like that starts to fill me with doubt. Uh, yeah, um, I've got to say, yeah. since it was announced Brian Singer was back on it, I've been more concerned about Days of Future Past than I am about Ben Affleck as Batman. I don't care about Ben Affleck as Batman, really. I don't, really. He's That's already, what I'm saying. He's already been Batman. He's got a copy of Daredevil and a, <laughs> a copy of Batman, of, a pen. And colour him in. Colour, yeah. Colour him in black. Sorted, yeah. <laughs> um, everything I'm hearing about Days of Future Past is just putting me off it. I've not heard much from it. From Brian Singer taking over, and people have criticised Christopher Nolan yeah. for draining all the fun out of Batman and making humourless movies. Brian Singer was doing that before Chris Nolan did it. Let's be honest, the X-Men and X-Men 2 are hardly laugh riots, are they? No. And the first one's really rather dull and po-faced. Yeah. The second one ups the ante slightly, but it's still not what you could call a fun movie. Well, if anything, are the X-Men films, Wolverine Origins and X-Men 3, the most fun, but they're the worst? No, there's the um, first class is excellent. I'm not and that. that's what gave me hope for this new franchise. It was an entirely new team. Oh, I was probably the I was probably the only one not dancing a jig when they announced Brian Singer was coming back. Yeah, for all the reasons I've just said, he for me he's just as guilty of being a, a fun limiter as Chris Nolan is. And you could have adapted Days of Future Past for the first time ever. We yeah. could have got a literal adaptation of a comic book story. And the more I'm reading that Patrick Stewart's back. Ian McKellen's back. Yeah. Hugh Jackman's going to be in it. Ellen Page is back as Kitty Pride, which I approve of. But look me in the eye. Do you honestly think Ian McKellen's going to be in that film for two minutes? Not really. No. Well, it's going to be another one of Singer's love letters to Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart and Hugh Jackman, isn't it? Yeah. That's what it's going to be. And more and more, I'm like, you know, this Batman Superman film sounds like it's a much better idea than letting Brian Singer loose on Batman X Men again. Mm-hmm. I know I'm in the minority. In fact, that can be your first question, lovely email listeners. <laughs> Tell me why I'm wrong. Or let me know what you think of it. I mean, I'm not interested in the Ben Affleck as Batman thing. Let's see the performance first, should we? Mm-hmm. I think, as Grant Morrison said, let's wait and see yeah. before we condemn the poor guy. And that just irritated me. Let's try and get a guy fired from his job. Yeah. That's, that just sickened me. Well, Internet, you should be ashamed of yourselves. Who was saying he should be fired? There are all these petitions to Warner Brothers to get Ben Affleck fired. He's okay. not even started filming. We haven't seen so much as one second of footage of him as Batman. How about I sign a position to posi- petition to get you all fired from your jobs? Mm. I mean, I don't have much sympathy for a multimillionaire actor, but the point, the principle... Yeah. ...is the same. I think it was Grant Mor- Morrison again at the talk who said no one would have thought... Uh, Michael Keaton no. could have been Batman no one would have thought Michael Keaton would have been Batman I mean there's been nothing but people digging up arguments on both sides to support their own theories which always happens yeah. when this goes on but all of the negative publicity around Heath Ledger being cast as the Joker 
mm-hmm. and he received almost universal praise, didn't he? Maybe not from me, yeah, but everybody else. Yeah, I mean that's said before. The, the central performance in the Dark Knight is a great central performance, but not the Joker. No, but it is a great perfor- It is a great acting performance. Yeah. So I mean, I'm presumably he was playing the Joker that Christopher Nolan wanted him to play. The actor will give the director what the director wants. Yeah. So, so I'm I'm much more concerned about Days of Future Past at the minute than I'm about Ben Affleck as Batman. Uh, Rob went on to say that the comic's use of non-physical time travel was cool, that he read The Age of Ultron after listening to the podcast and totally agrees with your assessment, Andrew, of it being a much longer version of the excellent Days of Future Past, only with Ultron instead of the Sentinels. Rob concludes by demanding we pick some books that he can hate and talk smack about, as he's starting to feel like a Pollyanna with all the positive spirit. Well, no, we're not going to do that. We're just going to keep picking good comics. That was R.L. Stubbs Jr. Thanks, Rob. We appreciate you reeling in. Uh, Luke Giaconetti emailed in to the entire Wild and Crazy Leyland gang. Luke said that emailing in about emailing in is one of the cardinal sins of podcasting. I didn't know that you're not supposed to do that, uh, but the rules of podcasting seem to me are made up as we go along. So podcasting Ten Commandments. Yeah, if you want to email in about us doing an email show, feel free. Yeah. <laughs> um... Luke also said, I was sorry your family does not listen to your show. I know I was shocked to discover that my wife does not listen to Earth Destruction Directive or the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. So shocked. I don't believe him. Yeah. I think he's been snarky, though. <laughs> Oddly, his father does listen to his podcast, which I quite like. Um, Luke continues, whilst I disagree with you on Preacher, I didn't understand that. How can you disagree with me that my favourite non-superhero hero was Preacher? I'm saying that I can't have that opinion. Uh, maybe he's disagreeing with you that that, that is, he doesn't think it's all that good. But that nobody said what's the best. People ask me what is my favourite. You can't agree or disagree with somebody's favourite. You can disagree or agree with somebody saying this is... Somebody who says The Dark Knight Rises is the best movie ever, yeah. you can agree or disagree. Right. But if somebody says Dark Knight Rises is my favourite, you can't agree or disagree. So, okay, fair enough. So I didn't get that, Luke. I didn't get what you were saying there. Uh, Luke continued, though, I do appreciate your passion for the series and the thought that you put into your response. While superheroes comics will always be the bread and butter for most fans, I think that most readers would be well served to branch out beyond the long underwear set and try something in a different genre. It's unfortunate the big two seemingly can't sell a traditional genre boot besides all-star western, but luckily we have Vertigo, third-party publisher, and lots of reprints of classic stuff to help out. Some of my favourite non-superhero comics are Sergeant Rock, The Unknown Soldier, the EC pre-code horror book Backlash Weird War Tales the Charlton comics the DC mystery books DC and Charlton comics romance etc 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 as per Yul Brynner etc 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 uh, I agree entirely with that I think we've said you'll hear this when we're on views yeah both of us didn't we said that the superhero genre is great I think we've more than made it clear we love superheroes but a comics medium that is only superheroes is a poorer comics medium and uh, we'll tell you at the end of the show what we're going to do next week but it has led to us thinking of doing a series of shows that we know nothing about characters and comics we know nothing about because it saves on the research because it saves on the research <laughs> um, thanks for answering the wide and varied and ridiculous question we asked loved hearing everyone's input into the show thanks Luke Lou went on to say that the Wolverine also fits in with his Batman minimum appreciation index theory that everyone likes him to a certain degree he also asks if any actor is more associated with his role than Hugh Jackman with the exception of Robert Downey Jr but I think that's because Jackman's played him so much over such a concentrated period of time yeah isn't it I mean how many times has he played Wolverine now seven 
Is it seven times? Three X-Men movies, two... Wolverine films. Two Wolverine films. That's five, so six with First Class. Yeah. Seven with Days of Future Past. So yeah, seven times he will have played him in a relatively short span of time. Uh, this bit was really interesting. This bit, I liked this bit, Luke. This bit was good. We also touched on the great mystery for those of in the West, Japanese honorifics. Remember, we discussed the Logan San and yeah. Mariko Chan and all that stuff. Regarding Lowland calling Mariko, Mariko Chan, this is actually correct because I said it was wrong. Okay. <laughs> the honorific Chan is used to convey a diminutive relationship that the speaker finds the addressee endearing. It is common for a man to refer to his lover with a Chan. It is also very typically used for young women. Similarly, similarly, Mariko could have called Logan Logan Kun, as one of the uses of Kun is when a female is addressing a male she is close with or has known for a long time. Again, a term of endearment. Kun is used almost universally for males. Chan is almost always applied to females. As far as the relative ranks of the honorifics, it's very involved and complex and depends entirely on the relationship of the speaker and the listener. Husband and wife will often use San when talking to each other in public. San is most closely equivalent to Mr. Mrs. Ms. In private, they would drop the honorifics altogether. Two businessmen would call each other Sam, but if the listener is much higher in rank than the speaker, you might say Sama instead to show respect. But if you were a businessman talking to your customer, you would also use Sama to show great respect to them. It's all very involved. Gaijin is almost always used in terms of an insult in modern times. This dates back to the 1800s when Japan became widely open to outsiders. Gaijin is often considered equivalent to foreigner or outsider nowadays. In the feudal era, it was equivalent with barbarian. There are less offensive ways to say that someone is a foreigner, which are more commonly used in polite conversation. Domo arigato once again for the show, Luke. Thanks for that, was fascinating. Because yeah. I did actually do a fair bit of research about the honorifics and cocked it up, obviously. Yeah. But I didn't rely on Wikipedia either. Yeah. So I did actually do some digging as yeah. to what the honorifics actually meant. So I, I did make a slight error there. So thank you for that, Luke. I, I like that. I like um, learning about a little bit about Japanese. P.S. My favourite sound effect in comics is also an X-Men related one. Bamf! This betrays my love of Nightcrawler. Only a little bit. Uh, our final email tonight is Patrick Kokora, and it's labelled My Next Epic Podcast and My Podcast. Patrick from Metro Detroit here again. I love the whole clan answering questions from email, although the wife did steal the show with her charm. I'm not going to tell her that, because that would, that would end badly for me, yeah. I suspect. Yeah, well, they can't hear you. I was wondering if you two, Andy, a.k.a. General Buffoonery, and Michael, a.k.a. Captain Silliness, plan on any more epic and multi-part podcasts. Oh, do we? <laughs> oh, Patrick, me old cock sparrow, let me get the book that we have here. Now, bear in mind, young Patrick, that just because it is written in the book doesn't mean it will happen on the show. But currently penciled in... Giving the Devil is due season. We have four weeks worth of Daredevil that have penciled into here. Spider-Man, the original clone saga, is, would be a multi-part epic if we did it, but it's in the book. Uh, random one-offs would be a season where I just pick good done-in-one issues, although not a, a long season of one story. It would certainly consider a season. We are considering our Nick Fury show, The Viltramite War, uh, Teen Titans, Blackfire, Rock World, and a Godzilla show yep. for Michael. Uh, no Nothing season we've already mentioned we may touch upon. But what's on the cards that will definitely happen next year is Batman's birthday. We're not celebrating Batman's birthday. Oh, no, 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 no. Five weeks penciled in at the minute. Dreadful birthday, dear Joker. 
we're going to celebrate the Joker's birthday. So yes, I think the answer to your question, we do have other multi-part epics planned. Your podcast has inspired me to launch my own. Ooh. That's always cool. When yeah. We inspire people to more do promos. things. Yeah, yeah, more promos. <laughs> to join the massive list of other comics podcasts, it is similar to your podcast in that it is father and son discussing comics. My father, though, feels comics are silly rubbish, crafted for people who are in one of two camps. The first camp: dolts who think flying men, vampire cops, and alien invasions are real events. Are they not? I thought they were. I thought they were. Or oh, the second camp, in his words, low life type people. Well, I'm glad we're in the first camp. <laughs> <laughs> I give my father a first issue of a series or story arc, he reads it, and then we discuss the comic. I attempt to answer his questions and steer him back on track or plead the merit of comics. His only condition is I must present him with some type of treat in the form of a fatty and or sugar-infused food item. I will send along a promo shortly. Good, we'll make sure that you do. We'd love to play that. Uh, his podcast can be found on iTunes under the title Make Dad Read Comics. And uh, you can also find information about Patrick's show on... Yeah, makedadreadcomics.blogspot.co.uk. He says, thank you for the show. You're very welcome. And it holds the number one slot in his rotation. I always like being somebody's number one slot. <laughs> Don't you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Dan's idea, though, worked quite well, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I do apologise about editing them, but we gave the gist. They were pretty butchered. Yes, pretty much. But anyway, let us know what you think of that. I mean, we may go with the other idea of one email per show and then save the others for an email show or whatever. Yeah. But like I said last week, I'm never, I'm not 100% behind email shows. I don't know what I think of them. I've not actually come down on one side or the other. Anyway, speaking of promos, there's one here for a show. It's grand. We'll be right back. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring the thrilling adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast. Superman in the Bronze Age. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. The Schuster Herald Podcast. It's Superman. The Carousel Podcast. The Amateur Steel. A John Henry Allen podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey. Scott Gardner Sam Rizzo Danny Sapp Matthew X I'm Isaac I'm Adam Dave Eunice and co-host Scotty V at supermanpodcastnetwork.com And we're back So far we have seen No, 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 no You like me be Bill Dorsey We've not done this for a while have we? Yeah, the evil trickster god Loki, or Loki, depending on your pronunciation, arranges the villains of the Marvel Universe into tackling foes who are unknown to them in the ultimate acts of vengeance. Spider-Man, the recipient of strange new powers and abilities. The evil Doctor Doom, observing these abilities, craving them for himself. Spider-Man, unsure and confused, still manages to defeat adversaries he's never met before or only met briefly. But wait! The worst is yet to come! 
Batman, but it's a Batman. We can't go into Batman for Spider-Man, come on. Spider-Man. Biff. Pow. Boosh. Thwip. Spider-Man. 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 Sorry, Nicholas Hammond. Spider-Man. That totally worked. Yeah. I'm having that. You can have Batman. Batman does whatever a bat can. Does whatever a bat can. Hands upside in caves, poos all hands over your hands upside caves. down in caves, poos all over your face. Say the there goes the Batman. <laughs> oh yeah, Spider-Man, Cosmic Spider-Man, Acts of Vengeance continued. Web of Spider-Man 60, which has a cover in which Spider-Man is shaking his fists at the heavens. Oh, Goliath's crotch, anyway, as he towers over our hero, saying, "So you're the strongest hero in the universe." The floaty heads of doom, Magneto and the Kingpin watching passively. Alex Savix doing a pretty good job with these covers, imbuing a sense of humour into what could be another po-faced crossover. It now has a January cover date and was released on November 7th, 1989. Did you like that cover, young Michael? It's a pretty good cover if it didn't have the floaty faces on it. The floaty faces of doom. Yeah. I suppose you've got to show that they're in the in the, the thing somehow. That looks a bit like Joe Rubenstein to me. Again, his Doctor Doom's pretty terrible. Yeah. Isn't it? I didn't like that Doctor Doom at all, but uh, the cover it was okay. I do wonder why Manhattan, New York, one of the busiest bustling metropolises in the world, Yeah. why is the street empty? Maybe they saw this giant man standing in the middle of the road. And thought, no, that, no, would, that wouldn't bother New Yorkers, dude. <laughs> They'd run over his foot. <laughs> Get out of the way! You big hairy elk! I don't know what a big hairy ape is. <laughs> I was trying to say ape in a New York accent. I heard it kind of wrong, did you? Ope. Ope. Get out the way, you big ope fuse guys. We've got a job to do. Rocky, hit him high, hit him low, rock. <laughs> Why did I become Burgess Meredith? <laughs> the harder they fall, moving swiftly up, uh, was written by Jerry Conway. It was penciled by Alex Savick. It was inked by Keith Williams. Lettered by Rick Parker, coloured by Bob Sharon, Jim Salakrit was the editor, Tom DeFalco was editor-in-chief. The Triborough Bridge in New York is currently home to a pitched battle between Spider-Man and Goliath, formerly small-time loser The Smuggler. In the traffic snarl up caused by the brawl, Daily Bugle photographer and Peter Parker's main competitor, Nick Katzenberg, snaps away. As Spidey lays out Goliath, he takes off for Forest Hills to visit Aunt May, whilst two faux FBI agents pick up Goliath's body and class at Katzenberg keys somebody's car for calling him a tub of lard. Goliath awakens in the Acts of Vengeance HQ, wherever that is, and Doom says there may be a way to infuse Goliath with power enough to defeat Spider-Man. In Forest Hills, Peter apparently needs Aunt May to guide him in how to use his powers for good, and Nick Katzenberg discovers the Bugle's new owner has no interest in pictures of Spider-Man being portrayed as anything less than a paragon of virtue. Spider-Man shows up as Katzenberg leaves and asks Fireheart how long this hero worship thing's going on for. But again, the conversation is interrupted when the Kingpin calls Fireheart to arrange a meet with Spider-Man. Spider-Man takes the call and they agree to meet at Battery Park. Kel surprise, it's a trap, as the Kingpin lures Spider-Man in for a rematch with a newly empowered Goliath. Goliath reaches new heights, hey, and Spider-Man opens fire with a blast of super-powered eye beams that just make Goliath's size increase. 
proving that it's not what you've got, it's what you do with it, Spider-Man opens up with another barrage, but again, this only increases Goliath's size, and Spider-Man, with his new powers, can sense the stress this is placing on Goliath's body. He tells Goliath as much, but Goliath picks up a ferry to hurl at Spider-Man. With no choice, Spider-Man opens fire on Goliath, knocking him into the water, and thanks to his new abilities, he manages to save the lives of the ferry passengers and prevent the tidal wave caused by Goliath's collapse. But when the water settles, Goliath is nowhere to be seen. Elsewhere, Doctor Doom monitors and schemes. With this new data from Goliath, the ultimate power is in Doom's grasp. <laughs> I am evil, Doctor Doom. It's a very funny laugh. Did you like that? Yeah. Imagine if Doom laughed like that. <laughs> I don't, I don't Doom, Doom doesn't laugh. No. Doom doesn't do laughing. Anyone who laughs in Doom's presence is executed. No trial. It's no not, hope of parole. It's not very funny. <laughs> Doom has no sense of humour. Doom has no time for humour. Uh, the opening fight scene in this issue is similar to the other scene in the storyline so far, but some great new wrinkles. One being Nick Katzenberg, who's a scumbag. Yeah. Isn't he? Yeah. Through and through. And it seems that Peter isn't actively taking photos for the bugle at this point. Because he's not got his camera set up anywhere, has he? No. Which I thought was a bit strange, considering that he does nothing but bitch and moan about the fact that Nick Katzenberg is stealing all of his money by selling photos to somewhere that Peter isn't taking, taking photos, photos to sell in the first place. Mm-hmm. Also, why does he have to sell his photos to the Daily Bugle? There are other newspapers around. He used to sell them to the Daily Globe. Yeah. I mean, I know the Globe's out of business, but I'm sure there's other newspapers who would want photographs by Peter Parker, who at this point has had a book of his photographs published. Hmm. Peter Parker's a published author at this point. So it always struck me as a bit odd, that. It could also be that Murray Jane's earning good money as an actress or model or whatever the hell she is nowadays, uh, and his studies are taking up most of his time. So maybe Murray Jane's earning enough to keep them both, given that she's an actress on a daytime soap opera. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much they get paid, but they probably get paid more than photographers on a major metropolitan newspaper. Maybe. I would imagine. Uh, the Triborough Bridge toll booth gets trashed as do at least six cars yeah. on page four. I'm pretty sure somebody somewhere has worked out how much this battle would have cost the city of New York if it was real. <laughs> Pithy? A little bit. Okay. Uh, the visit with Aunt May that takes place on pages seven through page nine, sorry, onwards is, well, rather pointless. I thought it was hilarious. Did you think this was funny? I did. Her reaction... Yes, I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, Peter seems a little dense, given that essentially all Aunt May says to him is what Murray Jane's been saying to him for the past couple of issues anyway. Yeah. But yeah, Aunt May's reaction on page 11 is hysterical. <laughs> Peter just goes up to, she's in the garden, doing whatever she's doing, which, mowing up leaves or something, um, waiting for death. <laughs> <laughs> Waiting for death's warm embrace. Begging, begging for death's warm embrace. She would throw herself into his arms gladly at this point to escape the world's decadence. Because she accepts her own death and she accepts Nathan's death. And yeah. accept- <laughs> um, Peter says, well, it's just a hypothetical question, Aunt May, but what would you do if she had the power of life and death? And Aunt May has a stroke on panel. <laughs> she, she looks like Peter's mercilessly killed her cat. <laughs> And then ate it in front of her. <laughs> and cooked it in front of her. Her face is, her face is one of shock and oh! But it's the hands that sell it, isn't it? She's got her hands 
just like flapping around <laughs> to the side of her. <laughs> it is the most unintentionally hysterical panel I have seen in a comic book for quite some time. <laughs> Michael can barely keep a straight face looking at it now. <laughs> I mean, we always think our mess scenes are uh, largely superfluous, but at least that one was funny. Unintentionally, but nevertheless funny. The scene in Thomas Fireheart's office, though, I can actually... I don't want to, but I can actually see Nick Katzenberg's point of view on, on page 15. The pictures that he's trying to sell him of Spider-Man fighting Goliath are news. Mm-hmm. That's Spider-Man fighting somebody on the Queensboro Bridge is news. Spider-Man suddenly being able to blast laser beams out of his fingertips is news. Yeah. And Fireheart should publish them. Besides, they don't show Spider-Man in any more of a negative light than a lot of Peter's pictures over the years. Yeah. At least Nick Katzenberg isn't actively faking his photos, which Peter has done on more than one occasion. Yeah. So, I actually saw Katzenberg's point there. To be honest with you. The scene is also incredibly melodramatic, especially when Katzenberg leaves and Spider-Man just arrives for no reason other than to say, hey, Thomas, when are you going to stop saying nice things about me? Yeah, yeah. So, like, he's never happy. Yeah. He's put up with Jonah saying nasty things about him all his life. But now he doesn't want And now he's got somebody saying nice things about him. He's like, when are you going to stop? Yeah. It's just like, oh, shut up. But it's it's incredibly melodramatic in both the words and the pictures. The pictures are especially Spider-Man's all clenched fists and I'm going to get you next time and Fireheart's all, with his hands like, you know, like T-Rex hands. (laughs) But it gets especially melodramatic when when Glory Grant shows up. The last time Glory Grant saw Spider-Man, she tried to kill him to save her lover, the gangster Eduardo Lobo. Her gunshot went wild, and her lover was the one to die. It's a secret she and the web spinner share. Seeing him reminds both of them of her secret, and of a grief she cannot bear. It's a bit over the top, isn't it? Just a little bit. Just a little bit over the top. It seems the whole point of this was just to remind the reader of Spidey and Glory's issues, presumably for further down the line and expedite Spider-Man's arrival at Battery Park after we very conveniently yeah. get a phone call from the Kingpin. So the Kingpin's got Thomas Fireheart on speed dial. Yeah. Thomas Fireheart is now the publisher of a major metropolitan newspaper. The Kingpin is well known at this point as being the Kingpin of crime. Yeah. Thomas Fireheart has him on speed dial. That's not compromising in any way. Nope. No, not in the slightest bit. Interestingly, when Spider-Man accesses the power cosmic to bring Goliath down, later on in the issue, after another extended fight scene, that is actually quite good. Saviot does a good job with the fight scenes. There's a blue outline around him on page 25 of another figure that we've never seen before. Mm, Which I like, because it isn't quite Spider-Man, and it isn't quite what it will be. No, so it's it's good that I did like that I thought that was quite clever I mean again I suppose we should make mention of the fact the page numbers in this at this point Marvel were numbering every single page yeah so this is page 25 of the comic not page 25 of the story so if you're not reading this in the actual comic like if you've got a trade or something the page numbers are out of whack I do apologise for that but I'm not going by renumbering them <laughs> renumber all the pages with a pen <laughs> it'll be the first time I did that so that's a nice little clue 
to what's going down in the storyline. Um, I actually thought this was a much better issue, melodrama aside. Yeah. And the unintentionally hysterical anime <laughs> panel, which which did make us bust a gut. There is finally a feeling of forward momentum. And there are some interesting ethical choices for Spider-Man to make here that he doesn't shy away from. The conflict at the end of the issue, he tries to warn Goliath of the strain that his constant oversizing is placing on his heart. But Goliath presses the attack, and when Goliath's actions threaten civilians, Spider-Man unleashes his full power set, possibly killing Goliath, a decision he makes knowingly to save others. Uh, it's a no-win scenario in full effect. Opens up a whole new can of worms regarding Spider-Man. Has he killed Goliath? Did he knowingly choose to kill to save innocence? Would overexposure to this level of power corrupt him? All excellent questions, all ripe for exploration. Though I kind of doubt that they'll be followed up on during the rest of this story, and indeed they're not, no. are they? which is a shame. All good ideas, though, worth exploring somewhere down the line. Uh, the bullpen bulletins this time was slightly truncated, wasn't it? Stan's sort box, Stan talking about Archie Goodwin leaving, and a couple of items, nothing of any import, to be honest with you. Did you like this issue, Michael? I did, yeah. I like the big fight scenes with big people. Big fight scenes with big people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Savio does a good job of choreographing the fight scenes. They're very well done. There's nothing particularly different about them. It's, it's kind of like Pacific Rim or a Godzilla versus film. Yeah, I thought. Unless the other thing it's fighting is very, very tiny, but very, very strong. Yeah. Like Godzilla, baby Godzilla versus... Godzuki. Mega, mega flipping big King Kong. <laughs> Is that his official name? Yeah. Mega flipping big King Kong. Yeah. Excellent. Good. That was the TV rated version. <laughs> I approve wholeheartedly. There was a comics advert in this. I can't remember if we covered this last time. Batman intro to new Robin. Robin lives. Meet the controversial new Robin. Tim Drake, a six-part series, a must-have. The Super Spider-Man saga that we're currently reading gets plugged, as does a Wolverine deluxe special in which Wolverine returns to the Savage Land, illustrated by Mike Mignola. Nothing else of interest, really, though. There is a letters page in this one, which yep. I thought was, was nice, because we didn't have any last time. It was good one, that. All right, yeah. The story continued into Amazing Spider-Man 328, which was released on November 14th, 1989, with a, a really quite good cover by Todd McFarlane. Spider-Man is gut-punching the Incredible Hulk, now grey, not green, apart from his tongue, saying, now who's the strongest one there is? Or he could be punching him in the nuts, given the angle. Maybe that's why the Hulk's tongue's sticking out. He's punching him right in Hulk's junk. Oh! Hulk smash puny human. Hulk has three Adam's apples. <laughs> McFarlane makes the Hulk look 400 years old. And a, lo- a lot like the Ultimate Hulk. Do you think? Yeah. Really? Being really, really big and grey. Do you think that's where Brian Hitch stole it from? Possibly. I'm not saying he's still I'd, at all. I'd never noticed this before, but now you've pointed it out. He is considerably larger than a man. He keeps changing size in the actual story, anyway. Yeah, well, it's McFarlane. Consistency wasn't his strong <laughs> point, was it? His art was dynamic and visually striking. Yeah. Not perhaps Whether it consistent. agreed with the previous panel. Whether it agreed with the previous panel is irrelevant. Yeah. To be honest, as long as it looks cool. Uh, I did like, and I always like, when the characters are punching somebody into a logo mm. on the comic so the amazing Spider-Man logo is being smashed to pieces and the corner box that has Spider-Man on it is falling over but I like the Spider-Man the Spider-Man's quite good his face is his head's a bit long yeah isn't it but it's, it's not a bad cover I like a little 
box in the bottom left is a Hulk. Yeah, Spider-Man. the UPC code or the barcode is the Hulk this time, not Spider-Man. Amazing Spider-Man is still the only book that is doing specific UPC barcode replacements. None of the others are bothering. Which is a shame, because I quite like it when they did that. That was always a good laugh. Uh, Shaw's Gambit was written by David Michelini, with art by Todd McFarlane, lettered by Rick Parker, coloured by Bob Sharon, Sally Cryptofalco, blah, 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 no differences. The story, as it was, ran thusly. Sebastian Shaw, one-time Black King of the Hellfire Club, since deposed by Magneto, approaches the Nevada desert. He has been solicited to destroy Spider-Man, but being aware of the new powers Spider-Man has developed and that the aforementioned Magneto is a part of this shadowy conspiracy, he's playing it safe. Landing in the desert, he greets the Incredible Hulk and asks if he would like to make a lot of money. I wonder if that's what he said to him. You got the brains, I got the looks. Let's make lots of money. Yeah. Works for me. In New York City, terrorists have seized the Statue of Liberty. That's terrible, you say, to which I say, that's why they're called terrorists. Spider-Man takes this as a personal affront and dispatches the unknown terrorist cell with haste and humour. Speaking of haste, our capeless wonder stuns the city by flying over to the World Trade Center for a late-night meal with his wife, Mary Jane. Sorry, with his girlfriend, Mary Jane. Flash Thompson and his latest girlfriend, Amber. You know something? Abba's a real pain in the neck, and MJ and Pete leave pretty quickly, making the excuse that MJ has an early morning call. It wasn't just an excuse, and the next day at Battery Park, the shoot is interrupted by a large grey hulk falling from the sky and hurling a truck across the busy metropolis. Spider-Man saves the people, and the hulk says he's here to fight for cash. Spider-Man's pretty annoyed at being attacked again, but even more annoyed about the bounty on his head. A few blows are traded, but before the fight can become epic, the Hulk leaves as the breaking day brings about his transformation into Banner. He tells Spider-Man to meet him on Roosevelt Island tomorrow night. Roosevelt Island, in the middle of the East River between Manhattan and Queens, makes for an excellent deserted battleground, and Spider-Man arrives to find the Hulk waiting. Hulk is glad, satisfied that Spider-Man's no coward, merely a fool, and battle commences. Spider-Man holds his own until two kids show up, having snuck over for a sneaky fag. The Hulk turns to the kids, and Spider-Man reacts by punching the Hulk into orbit. That was cool. The Hulk ponders his predicament, wondering what will happen first as the sun starts to come up. Will he suffocate, freeze, or explode? We never find out as Spider-Man zooms up to save him, and reluctantly, the Hulk calls off the hit. Later, Sebastian Shaw realises that Spider-Man's powers may be a threat to him and vows to find a way to make these new powers disappear. No one would be happier with this than Peter Parker, who frets about it some more to Mary Jane. The end. (laughs) Um, The comic opens with an excellent opening splash page of Hulk. Well, smashing. He's the best there is at what he does. Why is he even doing it though? He's just in the desert smashing rocks. He's just in the desert smashing stuff. He's the Hulk. That's what he does. I kill now. Hulk. Smash. You know. That's the deal. The Hulk. That's has. it. Yeah, that's, that's it. I'm born now. I'm, <laughs> I'm born now. I'm going to go and smash. So I can't wait to show my friends. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, 
This is the grey, non-too-pleasant Hulk of the early Peter David run. And pairing the Hulk, who McFarlane had previously drawn for a number of issues, with Spider-Man, who McFarlane drew to great commercial acclaim, together for McFarlane's last issue is a good swan song to both his runs. McFarlane gave the Spider-Man book a much-needed visual shot in the arm when he took over, and anything he lacked in artistic skill, he made up with in dynamism and layout. He uses black borders around certain panels to emphasise the action, and some of his camera angles are especially innovative. He draws the Hulk to look rather prune-faced, and he's now at the point where all of his people have blobby noses, but his art is solid if a little muddy throughout. To be fair, the muddiness may be the printing, which is not very good in this issue at all, is it? No. It seems very heavy on the blacks. I mean, talking about McFarlane's consistently, the Hulk's nose is at a weird angle on page two, and on page three you couldn't be bothered drawing him at all. No. He just drew a big outline, which worked, I suppose. There are numerous references to past stories on page two and three, however, none of them are footnoted. Mm. There's references to the Hellfire Club, there's references to what the Hulk's up to in his yeah, own book. Why is Hulk like a vampire now? Um, in the Peter David run, the Grey Hulk took over for a bit. And in the original run of comics, he changed into the Hulk at night. That was Werewolf. Right. And then as the strip evolved, it became anger and aggression and all that stuff. So at this point in the Peter David run, he's not... Joe Fixit yet, is he? Joe Fixit comes after this, I think. Yeah. So then he's the Grey Hulk most of the time, but he's got his intelligence and he becomes a bouncer in Las Vegas. Yeah. So it's all pretty good stuff, Peter Davis' run. You never read any of that? It's the stuff we've covered. That's it. That one issue. Yeah. That one issue where Thingyard died of AIDS. It's the only issue of Peter Davis that we've ever read. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. You know, can't argue with it. But it's very good. It's well worth reading. It's not Twin Peaks. It's just good storytelling. Oh, okay. You like it. <laughs> Honest. Go read it. Validate me. Uh, the terrorism scene at the Statue of Liberty is fun, but I've got to be honest, I wanted to see Spider-Man hand the Hulk his head reading this comic, so perhaps this entire scene was a little bit superfluous, especially when these are just generic terrorists, mm. aren't they? There's a good gag at the end of the sequence on page 11, when Spider-Man pulls the terrorist up by the lapels and screams, I bet! Spider-Man. But really this sequence just emphasises these issues, I presume deliberate, homage to Superman 2. Both stories open with a terrorist attack, both stories involve a bomb, both superpowered beings in red and blue, and both involve an opponent of equal power set calling the other out. Both have a first fight scene in a crowded city in which the antagonist throws a large vehicle that the protagonist catches to the stunned appreciation of the crowd. Both then retreat to a more deserted area to conclude the fight. There are obvious differences, but the main set pieces are all in place. I kept expecting Mary Jane to ask for orange juice freshly squeezed. What did you think of that bit? Um, it was nice art. Yeah, I was. They were just generic terrorists. What did they want? Were they domestic terrorists? Were they international? What What was the point of it? Some people just want to see the world burn. Is that your new swear to me? Yeah. <laughs> I gotta say, McFarlane's backgrounds are exceptional. Mm. in this issue um, I don't know if he's doing that thing of taking a photograph and tracing it but it doesn't look like he is the backgrounds on page 13 look especially good I'm not overly down with being able to see Spider-Man's facial features through his mask but it's not that bad 
in this. No, it's not awful. It's, it's not, it's not as bad as Jim Lee and Quisada would do it. Yeah. Jim Lee eventually gets to the point where you can see Batman's ears through his cowl. I like that. Do you? Yeah. I, I can't stand that. I think that's awful. I could have really done without the frankly tedious Flash Thompson yeah. subplot. Which isn't getting boring now at all. Yeah, it's like less less Flash, <laughs> more Hulk smash. Yeah. There's uh there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of Hulk before you get to the smashing in this issue, mm. isn't there? Which was uh, a downside. When the fight does arrive, it's well handled by McFarlane with the Hulk surprised at how strong Spider-Man is. And Spider-Man puts up a pretty good show, punching Hulk into a wall, which is always funny. Uh, the Daily Bugle newspaper, on page 20, has some funny headlines, presumably added by McFarlane, because they don't look like they're in the same lettering mm-hmm. as the rest of the comic. Uh, the headline, at Liffield on Mutant Book, presumably nodding towards New Mutants. Um, Cocky McFarlane tries to write... Referencing McFarlane's upcoming take on the adjectiveless Spider-Man comic, and who's Alan Moore? Which references I've not got a clue what that references. No. Did he have a problem with Alan Moore at this point? Maybe. Maybe. I've no idea. Alan Moore won't let me draw one of his characters. I didn't think he had any characters. Doesn't he use everybody else's? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh Page twenty-two is a great shot of Spider-Man. Amat- anatomically, it's bollocks. <laughs> yeah. But. Visually, it's absolutely brilliant. His legs coming yeah. off his hips. Well, that's what, that's what McFarlane brought to the book, isn't it? Yeah. McFarlane brought me back to reading Spider-Man after I packed in reading it, after the whole disappointing old goblin stuff. Well, what, here's issue one? Issue 298, 299 and 300 yeah. I picked up at the same time. I was going to say, that's some bad stuff to start reading. If no, you read no, no right not, not torment. <laughs> no. But that's where he scored. He, he's out. I mean, the guy can draw. I mean, look at the buildings and the backgrounds. And the cat, he can. He's choosing to be a little more stylistic with Spider-Man. But there are times where I think his anatomy could still have used work. I mean, maybe he's evolved now. It works in his favour, I guess. Yeah, it does. And it, it does give us... It was a smack in the face yeah. for readers of Spider-Man at the time. And, and the Hulk, I presume, but I didn't read his Hulk run off the stand. Um, the two kids on Roosevelt Island are called Stan and Steve. Which I thought was a nice little touch. Uh, after the big epic fight scene, which isn't really that big or epic, no. all things considered, Spider-Man blasts the Hulk with his eye blast on page 25 and seems startled and refers to this as a new power. Yeah. And that's for strange, given that he used it on Goliath in the last chapter. And he got it um, when he first got his powers, when he used his laser eye beams. So he did. Yeah. So that, uh, that's, that struck me as strange. Because it's not like you can even move these chapters out of order. Yeah. Because he references killing Goliath in this story. So it's not like you can move them out of order to make that not a mistake. However, Spider-Man punching the Hulk into orbit. Come on, that was funny. It's pretty funny until you then like, so how is he surviving in space, eh? Um, well, they discuss that. They actually do They actually do reference that. Yeah, yeah. Um, blasted web-slinger knocked me into orbit. Cold don't bother me, and I can hold my breath a long time, but this high up dawn's gonna hit me a lot sooner. If I turn into Banner up here, the only question is which I'll do, freeze, suffocate, or explode. So that, that's just it. The cold don't bother him. Yeah. The cold in space yeah. doesn't bother him. No, he's the whole dude. Right, and he can hold his breath a really long time. Yeah. I mean, he'd still die. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Turn it into Banner, it'll seal the deal. And I don't know why the Hulk was a southerner. So that, that's it, the Hulk just doesn't doesn't mind the cold? No, the Hulk doesn't mind the cold, he's, he's perfectly okay, <laughs> isn't he? Uh, my issue with this wasn't that, per se, it was right. Bruce Banner's a scientist. Yeah. This incarnation of the Hulk retains some of Banner's knowledge, if not his IQ level. Right. Alright. Therefore, he would know that whilst he might suffocate, eventually... Or freeze, eventually, in the vacuum of space. He would not, upon transforming back into Bruce Banner, explode. According to NASA, if you don't try to hold your breath, exposure to space for half a minute or so is unlikely to produce permanent injury. Holding your breath is likely to damage your lungs, but theory predicts and animal experiments confirm that otherwise exposure to vacuum causes no immediate injury. You do not explode. Your blood does not boil. You do not freeze. You do not instantly lose consciousness. That's from NASA. What does happen then, I wonder? Well, eventually you would just die. You would eventually freeze and suffocate. That's yeah, what they're saying. But not immediately. But not immediately. It's like, there's, have you ever seen Sunshine? Yeah. The Danny Boyle film. Where they wrap up. The scene he wraps up and he jumps across. Yeah. The theory being he can live at least, as long as he gets inside within 30 seconds or so, he'll be fine. Mm. And it works. Well, not for the one who misses, yeah. obviously. But so yeah, so Bruce Banner would know that he's not going to blow up, and therefore the Hulk should know that because this isn't big green dumb Hulk. Hmm. This is grey and smart Hulk. Stan's line about Spider-Man's really quite funny at the end, where um, he flies away, and Stan says, "Hey, if he's going to pull stunts like that, he better start wearing a cape." Come on, that was good as well. So, Super Bat Spider-Man. Super Bat Spider-Man. In the same issue. In the same issue. Spider-Man and a bat, a Superman and a Batman gag. And back um, to consistency again. That Red Hulk, though. What, where he doesn't actually bother drawing in any definition, he just draws some big teeth. massive, massive teeth. Draws some massive teeth and some hands. And how big he is compared to Spider-Man. Yeah. Yeah, It's a nice gesture, I'm going to return the favour, I won't kill you. Thanks, Hulk. (laughs) Try it. Go on. I just punched you into orbit. Whose ego are you trying to assuage here? Because it ain't mine. Um, I actually really liked this issue. Yeah. I really did find it a fun read. It was fast-paced, even though it followed the formula set down by the other issues. Bad guy shows up, Spider-Man fights him, and then reluctantly uses his powers. It actually felt pretty fresh. This is possibly due to the fact that Spider-Man is battling the Hulk rather than a no-mark C-list villain. And if there is a complaint, it's that neither of the two Spidey-Hulk bouts in this story last very long, totalling only five pages in a 23-page comic. I feel we could have given the tedious Flash Thompson subplot a miss in favour of more Hulk smash. Michelini peppers his script with some neat gags, and McFarlane, on his last issue of Amazing, delivers exactly the art job one would expect from it. By which I mean, if you like McFarlane's work, you'll like it, and if you don't, you won't see anything here that changes your mind. Sebastian Shaw is an interesting choice of villain, but I've got to admit, I prefer Doctor Doom, and would have preferred to see him pulling the strings here. Nevertheless, fun chapter. Fun chapter in the story. Mm -hmm. Did you like it? I did. I just liked the art. Why do you like McFarlane and not Larson? Larson is, on every conceivable level, a better artist than McFarlane. But this, he might be better, but I feel like his style wants to be McFarlane, whereas McFarlane is McFarlane. So technically Larson's a better artist, but Larson's too busy trying to be cool at this time. Yeah. See, 
in recent years he's just become Eric Larson in Savage Dragon. Yeah, I think I think Eric Larson is technically a much better artist than McFarlane ever was, and it is entirely possible he was just told to draw Spider-Man like that. But I don't think that works in his favour. It's not to his strength. Yeah, possibly not. He couldn't draw Mary Jane worth a damn. Yeah, but everything else was pretty good. The next chapter occurred in the Cosmic Spectacular Spider-Man issue 160. I actually think this was the first issue of the Cosmic Spectacular Spider-Man. Yeah. Rather than issue 160. And but the only. And the only issue, yeah, it was a, a one-issue miniseries. Yeah. Part one of one. <laughs> uh, it was entitled The Fear and the Fury, or The Metal in Men's Souls. It was written by Jerry Conway, with art by Sal Buscema. Rick Parker, Bob Sharon, Jim Samacril, Tom DeFalco, yada yada yada. Um, it came out on November 28th, 1989, covered by Sal Buscema of Spider-Man standing on the fallen body of the Rhino, the Shocker and Hydra Man claiming, I've beaten them all! Behind him, Doctor Doom sticks a big robot on him. Yeah. Which, <laughs> it does look like Doctor Doom is actually controlling him, waving his arms around. It's like, like one of the, the Xbox things. <laughs> virtual Wii games where you've got to move around yeah. while you're playing tennis. That's what Doom's the doing. Spider. <laughs> Doctor Doom edition. <laughs> I like that idea. Doctor Doom has a Wii. Um, not, not a Wii. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah. the game console. I mean, I can't imagine... Do- I would imagine Doctor Doom has an infiltration system. Well, I, I would assume that would be a six-issue miniseries of just him <laughs> trying to kick his armour off. <laughs> In Doctor, desperation. Doctor Doom needs to piss part one of six. <laughs> part one, undoing the belt. <laughs> part two, removing the gauntlets before he, he puts his hand down the... Part three, how on earth do I take these pads off? Because <laughs> can you imagine, his gloves have those things in that shoots from the hand, doesn't it? <laughs> you imagine if he gets hold of himself to take a pee and that goes off? Part three, interlude the Doom bots. <laughs> Part four, I just blasted off my own penis. <laughs> Part five, let's go to the hospital. <laughs> you will stitch Doom back together! Okay! Part six, let's run away before they find out I don't have any insurance. <laughs> Latveria, dude, it has its own medical. We've already discussed this. Uh, underneath New York Bay, Doctor Doom salvages TESS-1, a robotic defence mechanism created in World War II to prevent renegade super soldiers, hence the acronym Total Elimination of Super Soldiers. It's not burying the lead, is it? With this in his hands, <laughs> after what we just discussed, <laughs> Doctor Doom can take the final steps to his ultimate destiny. He's been taking these final steps for some considerable time yeah. now, hasn't he? In Times Square, Spider-Man takes out the Rhino, the Shocker, and Hydro-Man, thanks to his new superpowers. But the people of New York turn against him, giving Nick Katzenberg a new photo opportunity. He takes his photos over to Jonah Jameson, who is preparing a new magazine, and we get a subplot update on Robbie and new wrinkles such as Katzenberg saying that he can give Jonah the pictures he wants, but not the pictures he needs. But it's him or Peter Parker. Doom, meanwhile, has cleaned off the Tess one and instructed it that Spider-Man is a renegade super soldier, but the kingpin and the secretive man that will turn out to be Loki believe Doom has his own agenda. Peter and MJ get into a fight about Peter's new powers and he leaves in a huff. 
He's accosted by Tess Wan and Spider-Man fed up with everything, punches the robot into the Queensborough Bridge. To rebuild itself, the Tess Wan absorbs the bridge's superstructure and attacks again. This new skill installed by Doom will also absorb Spider-Man's new abilities and once in the Tess Wan, Doom will be able to access them. With Tess Wan back up and running, it attacks once more, but Spider-Man thoroughly fed up with constant attacks, public-fueled hatred and his argument with Murray Jane, lets loose with his strongest barrage yet, destroying not only Tess Wan completely, but also the last remnants of his reputation with the public. And later, Doom retrieves the pieces of Tess Wan, for inside its skull casing, everything Doom needs to... You guessed it. Achieve his destiny. It is your density. Let's <laughs> <laughs> take a pay. <laughs> uh, Sal Buscema's back to penciling and inking his own work, and it looks an awful lot better for it. The opening scene where Doom monitors the frogman sent to retrieve Tess One is perfect. Doom. He doesn't trust these people to do his work for him, but needs them to do it, so he's down there with them, micromanaging everything, then killing the one who makes a mistake. I did like the killing him was an afterthought. Doom was going to let him live and then just change his mind. Yeah. Doom does not tolerate failure, but Doom will be forgiving this once. Oh, who am I kidding? <laughs> Boom! <laughs> I, I reckon he intended to kill him all along. He just wanted to give him that false sense of security. <laughs> He just wanted to make him feel that he was he was okay. Yeah, just because the facial expression is that much better. <laughs> Fortunately, I'm in a in a generous mood. I let him live on second thought. <laughs> God, I love Doctor Doom. Doctor Doom's brilliant. Um, why would a robot designed by the U.S. government in case of renegade super soldiers be dumped at the bottom of the ocean? Um. Because before the whole nuclear disposal stuff, they just don't want stuff like that in the water, yeah. Yeah, because in old Fantastic Four comics, nuclear weapons would explode in water all the time. Oh, yeah. Because that's perfectly okay. Water destroys nuclear weaponry. This is well known in the Marvel Universe. When did they even have time to design this, given the creator of the Super Soldier Serum was killed before it be rolled out? Um, maybe it was a side project. You're just happy no prize in that? Yeah. Alright, fair enough. Uh, this was a retcon first established in Captain America Annual 8, which I presume is why the test one is at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, it's famous for the line where Cap tells Wolverine the Avengers would never have him. Mm. Tell Bendis that. Doom is approached by a minion saying that Magneto and Kingpin have issued him with a summons and Doom doesn't kill the man. Yeah. He doesn't even mention no man summons Doom. To be fair, he does ignore them, but I expected much more from Doom there. At the very least, I thought he was going to blast that guy to smithereens. No man summons Doom. But alas, you know, we're not going to get that. Spider-Man taking out Hydra Man, Shocker and Rhino with one blast was fun. Again, we see the ghostly image around Spider-Man as he strikes in true Spider-Man fashion. There we go. On page six. In true Spider-Man fashion, the crowd are more scared of him than the villains, and for once this feels earned rather than just more of the same. Yeah. They probably would be a little bit scared of him at this point. Again, I could do without the Nick Katzenberg subplot. Especially since it's Nick Katzenberg fancies or someone. Yeah, especially since it's, you know, Nick Katzenberg fancies a, a woman. 
that we don't care about and will never be seen in the Spider-Man books again. You just and forgot a name. I did, I've forgotten a name. And uh, Nick Katzenberg will die of cancer. Will he? Yeah. So, was it, wasn't that mentioned in the Superior Spider-Man? It was mentioned in the issue of Superior Spider-Man, yes. Peter couldn't remember who Nick Katzenberg was. Which is fair enough. The readers don't remember who Nick Katzenberg was. So why would Peter? Mm-hmm. Uh, what the hell is Mary Jane wearing in this issue? Um, she's a fashion model, for God's sake. Yeah, yeah. She's got a purple headband on. Peter does have a thing for headbands. It has to be said. Uh, an orange sleeveless top that she has tied up to show her belly. Purple short shorts... And pink clogs. Maybe it's the female Bruce Banner look. What, pink clogs? Well, no, the, the whole Hulk thing with the purple pants. She's rocking the purple. Yeah. Is this like your theory that there's a shop in the Marvel U that just sells purple stuff? Yeah, here it is, yeah. Fair enough, okay. Purple man's purple shop. This this scene felt a bit samey, didn't it? Peter whining about his new powers and not knowing what to do very with it. Mary out Jane going. Out of nowhere again. Yeah, yeah, Peter seems more like a whiny girl than Mary Jane ever has done. Mary Jane's never been a whiny girl. I mean, yeah. He's just a whiny guy. This just. I don't know. I mean, he does acknowledge that he chews her head off for no reason. So at least he does acknowledge that he was a bit of an idiot. But I, I just thought the scene felt a bit forced. Mm. and not really necessary uh, the battle scene is again lots of fun Buscema handles the carnage well and finally the power overload tours Spider-Man's gloves which was a nice bit of verisimilitude and Spider-Man being left alone on the bridge at the end is a nice throwback to Lee and Ditko one of those scenes where Spider-Man's left all on his Billy Todd as everybody flees from him mm. Oh. I did feel a bit sorry for him at the end. Yeah, but he did kind of call for it. You think? Yeah. Alright, fair enough. I, mean, I can understand why he was angry, but did he really expect anything different? You'd think he wouldn't do by now. Yeah. Wouldn't you? A middling issue, mm. I felt. Whilst the story does feel like it's progressing more in its latter stages than in the first half, there is still a feeling of wheels spinning in certain parts of the story. Still, the issue does feature one of the reasons I identify with Peter Parker. We really do get a sense that all the disparate elements of Peter's life, some of which he has no control over, are really starting to get to him. He snaps, he argues with Mary Jane and regrets it, he's pissy with the public, and it all finally comes to a head when he punches Tess one out into the river and then turns to the crowd saying, any comments? Good. Not in the mood. He is a character that loses his temper. He gets frustrated with life and then takes it out on his loved ones. And then he feels bad about it. Basically, he's a human being. He makes mistakes. He's relatable. Despite the costume and the tights, the best Spider-Man stories aren't about Spider-Man. They're about Peter Parker. And all of Peter's frustrations and anger bubbles over. Is he always a likeable character? No. Sometimes Peter Parker can be a real jerk. But we can all be jerks sometimes. We can all be unlikable and we can all make mistakes. There's a little bit of Peter Parker in all of us. Now to me. <laughs> to me! Where, where did Peter Parker come inside you? Where did Peter Parker touch you? Uh, did you like that one? It was pointless me asking. Not as much. Not as much that one. No, that's fair enough. The story continued into Web of Spider-Man 61, which came out December 5th, 1989, but we've moved into a February 96 cover date. 
The cover by Alex Savio Canandi Machine is excellent. Dragon Man opens mouth and hurls fire at Spider-Man whose costume burns off his flesh, but he's otherwise unharmed. This stinks, Spidey's thought bubble. It's the expression on Peter's face that sells it, though. This is no more than a minor inconvenience. Yes. It's a great cover, that. Mm. I really do like that cover, Dragon Man burning Spider-Man. Roasted by Dragon Man. Very funny. Yes. We'll see what you did, though. I did, yeah. With your editorial copy. Dragon in the Dark was written by Conway, art by Saviuk, inked by Keith Williams. Everyone else was the same. It's Spider-Man no more. Once again, as Peter, fed up with everything, quits the superhero lifestyle and hurls his mask from atop the Empire State Building. He swings off into the night, not noticing the wingless wizard watching. The wizard catches the mask as it floats to the floor and heads straight over to the Acts of Vengeance HQ, where he tells his fellow ne'er-do-wells... The Kingpin refuses to believe it, and Doom tells the wizard not to waste Doom's time. But the wizard uses the scent of Spider-Man, available as a cologne from all good comic stores, on the mask to send Dragon-Man after him. Has he not heard of DNA profiling? The next day, Peter is taking the subway to class when Dragon-Man attacks. Elsewhere, it's all subplots accounted for. Copyright from Crisis to Crisis. As Liz Allen Osborne asks Peter if he and MJ don't mind babysitting for Harry and herself tonight. And across town, Murray Jane visits her bulimic niece, Kirsty. The disguised Loki sees that Doom is up to no good, seeing him working out the data collected from Tess Wobb. Back with the main plot, Dragon Man pursues Peter through the subway tunnels where he manages to switch to Spider-Man before the train to Queens barrels straight into them. Spider-Man saves the passengers' lives with quick thinking and web airbags and he turns around and whips up a web shield to protect said passengers from dragon breath. Confused by webbing that won't burn, Dragon Man's flame sputters out and Spider-Man wraps him up and prepares for the worst from the public. However, they surprise him by applauding him saving their lives. The wizard, watching all this from afar, is not pleased that instead of finishing Spider-Man off, he's brought him back into the game and skulks away. Elsewhere, Doom makes final preparations for his power transfer, power that may be even more powerful than that of the Silver Surfer which Doom possessed not long ago. With the flick of a few switches, Doom engages the Framistats and gives himself over to absolute power, only to have the entire experiment backfire in a flurry of sparks. Doom's personal force field saves his life, but this can mean only one thing. Sabotage. Outside the room... Loki in disguise smiles. Sabotage. Sabotage. <laughs> uh, Spider-Man's all-encompassing new spider sense. You remember this? Every single one of the writers have mentioned it frequently over the, the run of this story. Yeah. They've mentioned that it is so powerful it can pick up a cat in a tree from across town when it's in danger of being run over. This all-new spider sense fails to notice the wizard not five feet away from him. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was a bit odd. Maybe. Maybe the wizard wasn't a threat. He was minding his own business. No, maybe the wizard's not a threat. (laughs) (laughs) That's possible. Uh, The villains have Spider-Man's mask. Given the more advanced Marvel Universe, could they not have swabbed the mask for some kind of DNA to find out who Spider-Man is? I'm sure there must be hers in there. Uh, Yeah. Spittle. Let's be honest. Having, having Dragon Man is a much more interesting story than <laughs> DNA profiling. Much more interesting storyline than a montage of the wizard doing some DNA profiling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, during yeah. The, during uh, the, the Acts of Vengeance HQ, 
they decided which makes for a much more interesting story. And they all voted for the Dragon Man. Hands up. Except for Pop Case Pete. <laughs> Who wants to do DNA profiling or he wants to sick Dragon Man on him? The Dragon Man idea sounds cool. We'll go with that. The, the acts of vengeance democracy. <laughs> Dragon Man, Dragon Man, Dragon Man, Doom abstains because he can't be bothered showing up. Yeah. <laughs> In absentia, Doom votes for Dragon Man. <laughs> Loki's in the bathroom banging his head wondering why he started it all at the beginning. <laughs> Loki's going, what the hell have I done? No wonder these guys keep getting beat. <laughs> oh, dear me. Spider-Man whips up a new costume after Dragon Man burns it off him, which I thought was really cool, actually, because this presumably answers the question of where Peter got a new mask from and how he made new street clothes after yeah. the street clothes were all burned off him later on in the issue. I was assuming Peter went on to attend college, that is, and he didn't skive off for the rest of the day. Maybe he thought, well, I'm already naked, I may as well just wander around New York. Well, it's well, New York, no one's going to cut. Have we ever seen him go to university in these issues? Only when something went wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Only when an experiment went wrong. He never actually go to class or anything. I mean, he's supposed to be going to class, though. He doesn't have any books with him. Yeah. He doesn't have anything with him. Does he not take a pen to class? Is he one of those students who always shows up without a pen? <laughs> bloody Peter Parker uh, Loki mentions early on he has trouble manipulating Doom and it's heavily implied he's responsible for sabotaging the equipment if he intends to kill Doom is left ambiguous which I thought was a nice little touch I've got to admit all the Doctor Doom stuff in this was great Yeah, every single page with Doom on was, was brilliant this issue in and of itself was alright it didn't feel epic enough to be the penultimate chapter of the story Peter's Dark Knight of the Soul was far too short and didn't have any of the trademark Parker angst to really sell this as anything more than a petulant temper tantrum Dragon Man wasn't really a formidable opponent and we're in the end game and Peter still doesn't have a clue what's going on or really seems all that bothered about it does he? No. He doesn't seem to curse oh yeah I was attacked by Graviton I knew he was I was attacked by Goliath I kind of killed him but I wasn't that bothered I was attacked by somebody else, the Incredible Hulk. I talked him out of it after I beat him into yeah, orbit. Yeah, Spider-Man, though. I mean, in comics, <laughs> it's just another one of those things. Oh, I got attacked by this guy today. Yeah. I was just on like, my way to here, but I got attacked by this guy. For anyone else, that would have been a major thing. But for Spider-Man, yeah. it was breakfast. Yeah. Spider-Man, it was Tuesday. <laughs> Spider-Man, it was a day that ended with a day. Yeah. Um, Doom is still the most interesting part of the story. He's not really given a lot of panel time in this issue. But ultimately, we're more concerned if Peter and MJ did end up babysitting for the Osborns. Oh, yeah. Not bad. More disappointing than bad. Um, there is, however, an excellent comic book advert in this one. This one is for... They're really not very good at advertising who they are, are they? No. In fact, who is this? It's a full-page ad New England comics. Well done. Somebody needs to teach these people that if you're advertising... Your, Your logo needs to be on the page. Batman the movie video was on VHS cassette for 19.99. Three Stooges dolls. I can barely wait to put them next to me, Harold Lloyd doll. <laughs> Marvel figures, fully colour posable and over half a foot tall. Wolverine, Spider-Man, Punisher. No Mary Jane or Gwen, alas. To put them in the shower. Uh, the Return of Robin... I presume this is Lonely Place of Dying. Star Trek had a brand new series, Burn Superman. Tales Too Terrible, which actually sounds pretty cool. Um, 
Batman knew there's no hot yet, is there? No. We've not got into the era of hotness. But Batman Legends of the Dark Knight number one again, three dollars fifty. You can find it in the fifty P bins now, Arkham Asylum. Frank Miller, Deluxe Heart Cover and Cuse's Dark Knight Year One and more. And by and more they mean that one Batman story that he illustrated that isn't Dark Knight or Year One. Was it Silent Night Deadly Night or something? Was that Frank Miller? Yeah. He did a Batman Batman Christmas story, didn't he? Tales of the Dark Knight, Year 2 book and a Secret Origins book. And The Killing Joke had just come out. Did you know at the end of The Killing Joke, Batman kills the Joker? I, I, did, I did not know that, actually. Uh, I, I, I did not know that either. No. Uh, there's an excellent advert in lieu of the letters page for The Amazing Spider-Man, The Saga of the Alien Costume Trade Paperback, which collects the story of the alien costume before it became Venom. I thought that was quite a nice little uh, little advert, though. Mm-hmm. Really disappointed in the comics adverts. So my, my, after reading Nightfall, we expect more of them, <laughs> don't we? We expect hot, we expect blazing hot. hot. With trading cards. Yeah, we expect the trading cards as well. There's no trading cards here. The story, as far as Spider-Man was concerned, concluded in Amazing Spider-Man 329, published on December 12th, 1989. The cover by Eric Larson and Al Gordon shows Spider-Man being crushed under the heel of the Tri-Sentinel and informs us that this is an Acts of Vengeance aftermath. At last, the secret of Spidey's cosmic powers revealed. It's a pretty good cover. Mm-hmm. It's all right, isn't it? Did you like it with it being Al, Al Gordon? No, wrong with Al Gordon. Did you like it with it being Eric Larson? Yeah, it was fine. I just noticed Spider-Man's legs are really, really small compared to the rest of them. He's been crushed. <laughs> Whatever. Sebastian Shaw... Oh, sorry, I didn't tell you you did this one, did I? Power Prey was David Michelinie, Eric Larson, Andrew Mushinsky, uh, Rick Parker, Bob Sharon, DeFalco, Salakrup, you know the drill. Sebastian Shaw looks over his fleet of new Sentinels and is satisfied, for there are no more worlds to conquer. These prototypes are the cornerstone of Project Nimrod. <laughs> oh, the government's secret plan for destroying mutants. He turns to other matters, namely Spider-Man. His new improved power set may be a problem. His chief scientist has deduced that at the time Spider-Man gained his upgrade, Dr. Max Lubitsch was experimenting with unknown energies. Shaw feels a little chat with Mr. Lubitsch may be in order. In Soho, Peter helps MJ run lines, but his heart isn't in it, and Mary Jane suggests he clear the cobwebs with a swing around town, Spider-Man style. And thus, the different players are all swept along in fate's path. Shaw, blackmailing Lubitsch, has him train some doodat on Spider-Man in the hope of negating his new powers. Graviton, witnessing Spider-Man swinging around town, decides to watch and see what's occurring. Loki, pissed off his acts of vengeance failed, decides to leave Earth a farewell gift. In the lab, the Sentinels merge into one large Tri-Sentinel and take off for Amity Point nuclear plant, sending Spider-Man's Spider-Sense into overload, but before he can tackle the Sentinel, Graviton attacks. Spider-Man has had enough of Graviton's stuff, and energy blasts him out of the way. The blast is flagged up on Lubitsch's monitors, and he fires the energy projector. The device hits Spider-Man, but instead of negating his new powers, it completes the job that should have been done originally, imbuing Spider-Man with the full power set and awareness of Captain Universe. Apparently, whenever humanity faces grave danger, the Enigma Force chooses a champion, and foreseeing the Tri-Sentinel 
It picked Spider-Man, but Lubitsch's energy experiment blocked the procedure, meaning Spidey got the power, but not the knowledge. Spider-Man isn't pleased by this chain of events, but can't let the Tri-Sentinel access a nuclear power plant and flies over to stop it. Engaging the Tri-Sentinel, Spider-Man must use all of the power at his disposal, but the fight is evenly matched. Sebastian Shaw, realising what has happened, activates his failsafe, a programme that actually convinces the Sentinel it is a mutant itself, and it pauses long enough for Spider-Man to whack it with everything he's got. The day lights up with energy as the Tri-Sentinel is destroyed. Spent, Spider-Man no longer imbued with the power of Captain Universe passes out. Later, Peter makes it home and tells MJ about his day. He wonders, could he have done more than what he did whilst in possession of almost unlimited power? MJ says he did all that he could. Oh, and then Flash shows up with another new girlfriend, Felicia Hardy, a.k.a. the Black Cat. They pack an awful lot of exposition into this final issue, don't they? Yeah. That was a pretty long synopsis. Um, Larson's art's pretty good in this issue, especially the Spider-Man Sentinel scenes. Michael may disagree. The splash page opener in particular is good in getting across how big the Sentinels are. Pretty big. Pretty big. Do you not like that at all? It's fine. <laughs> fine. Is that the best you can do? It's fine. Alright, fair enough. Uh, Peter's wearing a wife beater. And Murray Jane has a Spider-Man t-shirt on that is rolled up to show her hoo-ha. I presume she's wearing knickers and pink socks. Because you can't really tell though, can no. you, that she's wearing anything. So, you know. Is that like one of those paparazzi cut angles? Yeah. We've, we've, seen, we've seen Mary Jane too hard. She got out of the car. I'm getting out of the car, yeah. Yeah, or something like that. What's going on with Mary Jane, just generally? He's, he's not very good at Mary Jane. She's still got Peggy Bundy her. She's got huge eyes. She looks like an anime. Tiny little nose in the middle of her face. Which is a good place for a nose to be, but you know what I mean. And yeah, you know, his Mary Jane's just just not very good. Scenes we never get tired of. Number thirty-eight. Spider-Man stopping muggers, particularly this one, where Spider-Man deals with the perpetually hungry, quite obese mugger. Michelini throws in some funny gags as Spider-Man's webline tugs the mugger into the air. Never flab before, he thinks. Don't like it much. At the apex of his flight, he sees birdies. I'm gonna hurl. Michelini also seems to like the idea of exploring the idea of Spider-Man being slowly corrupted by his powers, having him thinking he's wasting his time stopping muggers before coming to his senses. Alas, he doesn't really get a chance to explore these themes. I do like it when he chains the mugger up in front of the police station. All he can say is, Are you time for lunch? <laughs> no, get me a lawyer. Yeah. Priorities are strong. <laughs> Yes, yes, he's wearing. He's got a kid and play her. Do he kind of looks like um, a fat, fresh Prince of Bel Air, doesn't he? Yeah, I, lo- I like his necklace. Yo, Yo. <laughs> that's quite funny. Yo, Ben's lunch. I liked him. I thought he was quite quite a funny guy. Larson's loci, whilst obviously owing an obvious debt to Walt Simonson, I thought well, that's actually quite impressive. I liked his loci. He's only in two panels. Yeah. But he's pretty good. Uh, the Graviton subplot is also pretty funny. There are three panels of the usual supervillain rhetoric about vengeance and defeating Spider-Man, blah, blah, blah. Only for Spider-Man to punch his lights out in one panel. Yeah. <laughs> Michelini seemed to have much more fun with the little gags mm. than the actual story. Although I would imagine he was obliged to tell this story. Because his plotting is particularly tight. He manages to bring all these disparate elements together and brings them together very neatly for the climax. He does have to explain an awful lot because they've not even bothered seeding 
worst bad he's got these powers from until now, have they? Apart from those no. two panels where the Captain Universe figure was drawn over him. So Michelini essentially has to explain it all in this issue. He does a pretty good job of it. Like his name's Clarissa. Uh, that's an old gag, isn't it? Clarissa explains it all. You don't even remember that show, do you? Larson Spider-Man is a combination of the more current McFarlane stuff and Ditko. McFarlane has said he didn't go back and study Ditko, just use what he remembered Ditko to be like. Larson has clearly gone back and studied Ditko, using a number of his poses in his work, and again using the blacks of Spidey's costume to highlight the red. It's a very good look, Spider-Man in red and black, rather than red and blue. I don't know why, I just, I just kind of like it. The fight scene's incredibly kinetic and interestingly laid out by Larson. Michelini works with what he's got, but the info dump for the Captain Universe Powells is handled in a very matter-of-fact way, as if Michelini just wanted to get it out of the way quickly. Although Spider-Man wondering if he could have brought down dictators or ended apartheid with these powers, again hinting at what Michelini would have liked to explore with these issues, is touched upon, nothing's really done with it. Overall... This was an adequate conclusion to the crossover, while still resolving the mini-series within a series that was running in the Spider-Man titles. Lip service is paid to the acts of vengeance with a cameo from Loki, although readers of Spider-Man alone are not told he was the handsome other member of the act's boardroom. I do feel that the Doctor Doom subplot was squandered, and maybe Doom should have been the one who activated the Tri-Sentinel in an effort to get the Captain Universe power or Doom should have been the one who found Max Lubitsch. That would have been a bit more interesting, probably made a bit more sense, and perhaps given closure to the story a lot better. In addition, as far as these comics are concerned, Spider-Man never finds out what's going on. He's accosted by numerous villains, none of whom he knows very well, for as far as he knows, no reason whatsoever, unless he finds out in a core Avengers book but it's never referenced in the Spider-Man titles itself. The powers, knowing that the threat of the Tri-Sentinel is coming and picking Spider-Man as the conduit seems very random. This implies the Enigma Force knew that the Acts of Vengeance would fail and that in a fit of pique, Loki would randomly use his powers almost as an afterthought to create the Tri-Sentinel that would then go on to destroy lots of planet Earth. This seems like an awfully convoluted chain of events to be able to predict. Spider-Man's losing of the power cosmic is extremely convenient as well. Job done, they just vanish. Fair enough, I suppose. Still, there was quite a lot to like about this. It was nice to journey to a time where consideration was given to the casual reader, or someone who may not be buying everything Marvel put out, and the rather wacky Spider-Man status quo of this time period was also nice to revisit. The art was a mixed bag, often inconsistent within the same comic, but again, it was nice to revisit this time period back when McFarlane had made it so everybody had to draw Spider-Man like he did. What did you think? I thought it was good. I was just expecting more of it. It does. But it did feel very added, tacked on, didn't it? Do you remember the old uh, PlayStation One Spider-Man games? Yeah. And they had a cosmic Spidey outfit, and it said the descriptions when Loki brought the Tri Sentinel. Like, oh, it's going to be some big story where he has a massive fight with a Tri Sentinel. It's the last three pages of an issue. Yeah. That did make it sound a lot better than it was, didn't it? Yeah. Had you never read this before? No. Right, so... It does feel very tacked on to what's going on in the Avengers book. It never feels a part of the crossover, which in one way is a good thing. Yeah. Because if you're only reading Spider-Man, you're not obliged to be following what's going on in the Avengers. On the other side of the coin, 
nothing's explained in the Spider-Man books. Spider-Man never learns about the acts of vengeance, never learns what's going on. The whole Tri-Sentinel thing could really have been done with no relation whatsoever to acts of vengeance, couldn't it? Yeah. He could have still got the Captain Universe powers and still been very... What the hell's going on? Why have I got these powers? And that could have gone on a couple of issues where he just fought regular bad guys. Hmm. The fact that this was part of Acts of Vengeance was irrelevant to the Spider-Man portion of the story. Which, you know, I suppose was, was okay. Before we wrap up tonight, Acts of Vengeance received an epilogue in Web of Spider-Man 64 and 65, entitled Once More with Feeling and The Last Act of Vengeance. They were both written by Jerry Conway, with art by Alex Saviuk and Keith Williams. While it's been taken to the vault, Graviton breaks Titania, the Brothers Grimm and the Traps are free, and together they meet up with the Chameleon, who promises them, and Goliath, who isn't dead after all, half a million each if they destroy Spider-Man in the name of himself and the Kingpin. Of course, they agree. Meanwhile, Peter Parker is fired for faking news photos of himself as Spider-Man. Actually, shots of he and MJ having a little frolic, courtesy of scumbag Nick Katzenberg. And he almost throws Katzenberg through a wall. Later, at home, MJ tries the amorous approach to making Peter feel better, but he ditches her when the expositional news network, copyright Michael Bailey, reveals that Graviton is trying to levitate a building again. He's really got to get some new shtick, hasn't he? Spider-Man heads over there and has his head handed to him by the famous five, and part one concluded with Graviton causing Spider-Man to fly up to the Earth's atmosphere where he will presumably suffocate, or blow up, I don't know. He manages to latch onto a passing 747, saving his life. The five somehow, however, discover the chameleons lure deserted when they show up for their cash, so instead hit the Kingpin, who knows nothing about it. It all being a plan of Chameleon to usurp Kingpin as leader of the underworld. Spider-Man arrives, fights the bad guys, and this time uses his brain to emerge victory. I don't suppose you read this one, did you? No. No. Uh, Not part of the official acts of vengeance and not being, as far as I know, included in any trades of the story. We're not giving this full coverage, but it was actually better than a lot of the official acts issues. Freed from the constraints of following a storyline that is dictated by other writers and can last only so long, Conway delivers an engaging and entertaining Spider-Man story that, whilst in no way being groundbreaking or innovative, is solidly entertaining. There are numerous subplots that presumably Conway will follow up on, the most intriguing being MJ finding a Green Goblin costume in Harry's closet after we've seen a Green Goblin-esque figure flying around New York. But really, this should be part of the story, as it ties up a lot of loose ends. And it's a fun read. Spider-Man is hopelessly outclassed in part one, and comes bouncing back in part two. It's pretty classic Spider-Man stuff, not wonderful or anything, but certainly entertaining. I think I enjoyed those two issues quite a bit. Mm. They were very good. And that about wraps it up for Cosmic Spider-Man Acts of Vengeance. We cannot comment on the Acts of Vengeance itself, because I have never read it. I think we should. People should tell us if it was any good. Worthy Tell us your favourite bits of Acts of Vengeance. Yeah, worthy of two omnibuses. Yeah. Yeah, Stanley and Jack Kirby's entire run of Fantastic Four, not out in omnibus yet. But Acts of Vengeance, that's totally in an omnibus. Oh, yeah. Secret Wars 2, totally in an omnibus. <laughs> Gee, God, really? Fantastic Four film out, they can't release it yet. Is that so? So when was the Acts of Vengeance omnibus <laughs> tied into the Acts of Vengeance movie? When did that happen? I, I think how it goes is if, if there is a movie, it can't be released until the movie's out. <laughs> So an Acts of Vengeance movie would give us an Acts of Vengeance omnibus second printing, would it? Yeah. Alright, fair enough. So when Miller's new Fantastic Four film comes out. Oh god, yeah. <laughs> it's going to tie in with the X-Men. Yeah. Joy. Yeah. That about wraps it up then, Cosmic Spider-Man. It was fun, quite enjoyed that. Nothing groundbreaking or innovative. 
In fact, of all the comics we've ever covered on this show, I'd say that that was a very definition of middle of the road. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes it's nice to turn down the middle of the road, and that Next time on an all-new episode, we have reached out across the pond. And we've finally done an episode that's... And we have finally... Yeah, we have finally done an episode that we promised for ages. We are going to look at G.I. Joe. We know nothing about G.I. Joe, do we? No, but knowing is half the battle. Hey, well done. So next week, G.I. Joe. I can't really tell you anything else, because... I don't know anything about it. Should be fun, shouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, we're just going to sit there going, all right, yeah, yeah. good issue this. I've no idea who any of these people are. Anyway. So next, we'll be back next week for G.I. Joe. Let us know what you think of the new email section. When you email in, don't forget, give us questions. Anything mm-hmm. that you want to talk to us about. Thank you very much for the people that did email in. We appreciate you lots. We'll be back next week with more inane blithering. And G.I. Joe. And G.I. Joe. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Stop shop for a plethora of true fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using heykids, or one word as the first name, and comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. <laughs>